Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. This week, anti-vaxxers gain momentum and power just as the country emerges from the pandemic. Republicans push voter suppression laws throughout the country, and Democrats in Texas flee the state. But first, new polling is out in the race for Seattle mayor. And joining me now to break down some of the numbers is Como's Charlie Harger. And uh, the first thing that we noticed, it's not as close as we once thought amongst the top two. That's true, Jeff. So what we are finding, this is a poll conducted by the on behalf of the Northwest Progressive Institute. And what we're finding is, first of all, the plurality of people still aren't sure who they are voting for. That's about a third of the voters. However, in terms of the two names, the two people at top are Bruce Harrell, who's getting about 20 percent of support, closely followed by Lorena Gonzalez at 12 percent. But just behind her, in that second tier are Colleen Echohawk with 10% and Jessen Farrell with 6%, uh, along with Andrew Grant Houston. So that really shows you that we have a... Uh, an election coming up, primary is coming up in August, August 3rd. And as far as we know right now, Bruce Harrell, he, he does enjoy an advantage. But for that second place, this is a top two finisher primary. Uh, it's a jump ball for whoever gets to be that person challenging, at least right now, looking like Bruce Harrell. Well, and, and what does this say about the Seattle voters? Because the top two both have significant city hall experience. They do. Bruce Harrell, of course, the former city council president and now out of public service, and Lorena Gonzalez, the current Seattle City Council president. So a lot of people would say, hey, look, those two are insiders. Those are people who have worked for Seattle for many, many years. Now, you have someone like Colleen Echohawk, who is an advocate, who oversees a a nonprofit. Uh, That is a different approach. You have Jessen Farrell, who's been uh, very involved in the community for years. And then you have Andrew Grant Houston. Uh, Here you have a, a a guy who is really supported uh, by groups trying to get young people into elections. You can't rule him out either. And and you talk about Andrew Grant Houston. We did a podcast on this uh, a few weeks ago. He is really kind of running away with the, the fundraising end of things, which kind of surprised a lot of people within the uh, party apparatus. Yes, and Andrew Grant Houston, he goes by ACE. And what is interesting to follow in his career trajectory is that a lot of people have said, we want young people running for office. We will give you the campaign infrastructure to do so. We will give you the training. He's the candidate who accepted that. And so he is a person who uh, really quietly behind the scenes is trying to uh, certainly reach out to a younger demographic and certainly a much more progressive demographic. And a lot of his money is coming from those democracy vouchers that have only been in place for a few years, but uh, they seem to be making a difference in the race. They are a huge difference when you think about Seattle being one of the unique cities in the country, in the world, in the way our elections are run in the city. Uh, every person who's a voter can give these democracy vote vouchers out to these candidates. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, but let's also take a step back here. We still have at least a third of people who are not sure. So, 
if somebody were to make a splash, let's say that uh, Art Langley uh, does something that gets him on the front page of the newspaper, he saves a kitten from a tree. I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Perhaps that is something where Art Langley suddenly uh, could be a, a contender. Is it uh, someone else who is really far behind in the pack? Uh, we will see. Uh, it was interesting to see this week uh, we had a mayoral forum in West Seattle that was held on on Saturday of last week, and the first time that we've seen at least nine of these candidates all in the same room together. We've done so much of this election electronically by Zoom, and that is also something that can't be discounted. What happens when we see these candidates in person instead of just what's being given to us online in a digital way? What happens when you're able to actually meet these candidates in person? Well, and the other thing that, that I find a, a bit interesting because there's so much pushback about how City Hall is handling things, particularly when it comes to crime, uh, the homelessness crisis, things of that nature. But yet the top two candidates are city insiders. They are city insiders. So Bruce Harrell, a long time, Bruce Harrell, for goodness sakes, served as mayor for a few days of <laughs> Seattle uh, when we had the resignation of Ed Murray. Uh, so Bruce Harrell uh, certainly understands the, the inner workings of the city. He, he's going to make the argument, hey, I've been away for a while now. I've been able to see what it's like on the outside. I'm going to come back and fix it. You have Lorena Gonzalez, her too. She is going to say, I haven't been on the city council for terribly long. And look at my uh, career outside the the council. That's that's the argument uh, she will make. Uh, whether uh, that really ultimately matters to voters, it remains to be seen. Well, and then a couple of other quick races before we let you go. The same poll had the city race for city attorney. Essentially a toss-up. Pete Holmes, the incumbent, 16%. Challengers Nicole Thomas-Kennedy and Ann Davison-Sattler are now going by just Ann Davison, both at 14%. That is going to be huge to watch. Now, keep in mind, 53% of voters in the survey are undecided. However, Pete Holmes, uh, known as certainly a far-left candidate, uh, he is not to the left of Nicole Thomas-Kennedy. Nicole Thomas-Kennedy is somebody who wants basically all crime and punishment abolished. She uh, is against prosecuting for most crimes. So uh, this is certainly an unusual position Pete Holmes finds himself in. And Ann Davison, you know, she is certainly somebody uh, who has uh, embraced moderates and conservatives. Uh, that's the lane she is going to uh, try to go for in this run for city attorney. And then in the uh, open seat for position number nine, Seattle City Council in that large district, Nikita Oliver seems to be running away with it. A lot of name recognition for Nikita Oliver. She was uh, third or fourth in the Seattle mayor's race four years ago. Uh, certainly got known very well among a lot of the voters. A lot of uh, progressive voters like her. They they liked under other candidates better. They wound up going for Carrie Moon instead in that previous election. Now she's running for this at-large position, so it's the entire city that uh, she would represent. And uh, she is certainly uh, well ahead of everybody else. But again, 50% of people in that uh, race are still undecided who they are voting for. Charlie Harger, thank you so much for your time. You bet, Jeff. All right, still to come, congressional Democrats reach an agreement on a budget, what it means for you and the country when the Como Politicast continues after this.
Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Senate Democrats this week said they have reached a $3.5 trillion budget agreement. They plan to use a process called reconciliation to avoid an all but certain filibuster from the Republicans. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Every major program that President Biden has asked us for is funded in a robust way. But how it's all paid for is unclear. Joining us now is ABC's Catherine Falders. And before we get to how it's paid for, what does this budget bill do? What are those priorities that the president outlined? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So uh, as you mentioned, this is happening after uh, weeks of negotiations uh, that Senate Democrats have finally uh, reached this agreement on this $3.5 trillion uh, trillion, uh, dollar uh, budget plan. It's the first step in unlocking the process that Democrats plan to use to pass with a simple majority of votes, uh, Biden's top uh, domestic priorities. But what exactly um, is in this? Well, in this $3.5 trillion budget resolution, um, it was this meeting that Biden had uh, on uh, Capitol Hill um, on Wednesday. Um, it was attended by Senate Democrats. Uh, it, it was a lunch where um, the top negotiators laid out uh, their proposal to the full Democratic caucus. So what does this include? It includes um, an expansion of the child tax credit, for example, at a duration that's yet to be determined, funding for a variety of climate initiatives, um, support for universal pre-K, affordable child care, um, community college and paid family leave, and investments in affordable housing and small businesses, um, among uh, other provisions. So that's uh, what's in this package right now. Uh, President Biden was up there meeting with all the Democrats on this. But I think it's important to note that it's not clear if all 50 Senate Democrats are going to back this package. Um, unanimous Democratic support will be required to get it passed. You're looking at those senators like Senator Joe Manchin. He emerged from that meeting um, you know, optimistic uh, in a sense about that top line number. He didn't seem to have uh, too much of an issue with the $3.5 trillion. Um, However, he did express some concerns about some of the fossil fuel initiatives, for, for example. So this is just kind of the, the beginning. Uh, this is a framework um, that is going to kind of set up the rest of um, these talks and, and really, you know, how they're going to go from here. And how long do they have? When does the fiscal year end? Because they've got to figure out a budget. Otherwise, the government shuts down. Right. The, the government does shut down. Uh, you know, they have a few months here and they don't have too long. And, and you know that they, they go away for uh, the August recess. Though Schumer has indicated that they're going to um, uh, to stick around um, for some time. But it, look, this is just the blueprint. This is uh, just the blueprint uh, for reconciliation. It's a framework. Um, it's 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 pretty skeletal at this point. So there's a lot of work uh, that needs to go into this happening. And look, if there's no um, reconciliation here, then what happens to the American jobs plan, the Americans families plan that Biden has been uh, making his his top uh, domestic priority here? It's really required um, for these uh, for this to really get through here. So we have to see what Schumer does, uh, what he brings to the floor, um, how this all plays out uh, over the next uh, few months. But look, it's, it's not going to have any it's unlikely to have any Republican support. So it's um, I, I, look, I think we could we could see Biden making a couple uh, more trips up 
to the Hill, more meetings with some senators uh, to uh, discuss how this framework uh, moves forward. Now, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia said this is all paid for. How do they do that? Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think you have um, Republicans who who um, would disagree with that. Uh, we've been trying to figure this out too. You saw what you saw. What Warner said that this is all going to be paid for. Is it? Um, is it you know taxing the 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 super wealthy? That's what um, Senator uh, Schumer said when asked about this uh, earlier today. That the that the super wealthy, the mega rich will be paying the right amount of taxes for the first time. So that's a good question. Where does this where does this money come from? Uh, look, I mean, you would if it's if what Senator Mark Warner is saying is true that this is fully paid for. Of course, he didn't give details on how that reconciliation bill will be funded, but. The reality is that Democrats have favored a hike in corporate tax rates. This is not unlike the one Biden um, originally proposed. So that's likely how we will see um, a lot of this funding come into play here. And then, of course, there's the infrastructure bill and the infamous infrastructure week from the Trump administration (laughs) has been kind of carried over to the Biden administration. Where does that stand? Yeah, that's a good question. We've been talking about infrastructure for months now, it seems, in the uh, in the Biden administration. Well, um, uh, during this week, uh, Biden sat down at the White House with governors and mayors from both parties to underscore um, that tackling the nation's infrastructure is a bipartisan issue. So, look, we're we're continuing to to keep an eye on on where that is in Congress and the, the bipartisan nature of that bill. But uh, look, I think with what we were just talking about with the budget, um, Biden is is towing a careful line here politically um, and, and doesn't want to risk, you know, offsetting a lot of those. Um, potentially Republicans who would have supported the infrastructure bill with this budget. Um, so I think that still is a bit in limbo about where that stands, how that's going to get through. But they, the White House is doing a lot of outreach by inviting these mayors, inviting these governors over to the White House um, to emphasize um, to them that Democrats and Republicans in Congress have agreed um, on the critical need to put federal funding um, towards expanding transit, rebuilding roads and bri- bridges and the like. All right, ABC's Catherine Falders, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. When we come back, the anti-vaxxers gain momentum and power just as the United States emerges from the pandemic when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The U.S. Surgeon General is warning Americans about the urgent threat of health misinformation. Health misinformation has led people to resist wearing masks in high-risk settings. It's led them to turn down proven treatments and to choose not to get vaccinated. This has led to avoidable illnesses and death. Simply put, health information has cost us lives. Dr. Vivek Murthy's advisory, the first under the Biden administration, addresses the epidemic of misinformation and outright disinformation and how it's affecting lives and people's health. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And uh, what are they hoping to accomplish here? Uh, Well, they're hoping to reach the people that will get to folks who are resistant to getting the vaccine and basically have them talk sense into them. Uh, Basically, uh, the doctor said, we've got to recognize that sometimes the most trusted voices are not the ones that have the most followers on social media or the ones that have the most name recognition. Sometimes the most trusted sources are a mother or father or a faith leader or a local doctor or nurse. He says that's why uh, they have to reach people with accurate information 
They have to partner with those trusted local voices. So there's a lot of frustration in this administration. You, you know, he, he could have basically said, look, we're talking to you, conservative media, media and, and we've seen this incredible disinformation. People saying people are dying from the vaccines, that the vaccines are putting uh, computer chips in you, uh, that uh, there's more risk to the vas- vaccine than getting this. And this is spreading like wildfire out there in in states that uh, have tended to vote more conservative and Republican and not Democratic states. And we're be- it, the nation is becoming kind of a two nation operation where there are places, including where you are in Seattle, where a, the vast majority of the people, well educated, uh, perhaps more liberal, uh, have the vaccine, and in other places uh, where they aren't. Uh, they don't have the vaccine and they're getting sicker. We're seeing these COVID rates rise here. So what uh, the uh, the doctor said is uh, he's got to go after different people. And this is, has to be a government effort at every level. He says we have to go after health professionals, health organizations to proactively have them engage with patients. So if you go to your practitioner and the doctor says, what, you haven't gotten your vaccine yet? Well, why not? And the person says, well, I heard on this network that it's not safe. They need the government is urging those health professionals to to give the straight facts to folks. And there's other areas as well with government technology uh, online, uh, which this, some of this is being combated now with uh, Facebook and Twitter when people are putting false information out there. But it's such a torrent that it's very hard to counter this. Interestingly enough, you, you mentioned this idea of microchips, and, and I'll, I'll relate two of my conversations that I've had with people over the course of the pandemic and talking about the vaccines. One person I spoke to actually believes that these vaccines are injecting people with microchips so the government can track them. Another one told me, no, he's not getting that DNA manipulator. Neither of those things are even possible So this seems like a lack of education, at least somewhat to me, that people are believing not only the misinformation, but things that on their face don't even exist. Well, the bigger problem is is that people are living in their own echo chambers of misinformation. So if you tend to be of a certain political persuasion, you tend to watch only certain uh, political outlets for news or go to those websites. And those websites and uh, news networks are amplifying this disinformation or at least sowing enough uh, doubt about this that you're going to say, gee, I don't know if I want to get this thing. And we've seen just sad case after case of people who said, I'm not getting the vaccine. They end up in the hospital. Some of them sadly end up dying or, or, or being grievously harmed uh, because of these of this virus. And now we have a new variant out there, the Delta variant, which we're being told and the evidence is growing that this is more contagious and in some cases even more deadly than the original uh, vanilla version of COVID that we had to live through for the last year and a half. So these are all really hard problems for a, a central government to, to deal with. I was listening to a conservative talk show host today saying that uh, basically dismissing everything the Surgeon General said today, saying this is just Big Brother trying to control your life. It's totalitarianism. They're trying to force the vaccine on you. The, the bottom line is no one is forcing the vaccine on anyone. They are doing a, a, a really difficult job trying to convince people that they should get this vaccine because it is not mandatory at this point. 
Well, the other thing, too, that I think a lot of people don't quite understand is not getting the vaccine not only puts yourself at risk, but it puts others at risk because it gives the virus more of a chance to transmit to you or to someone else who's not vaccinated. And every time it transmits, there's an opportunity that it mutates into another one of these variants, any one of which could be resistant to the vaccine. Uh, Again, this goes back to what appears to be, at least to me, a lack of public education, a lack of scientific and medical education uh, on the government's part in, in getting that information out there. And the federal government can't do that alone. You have to count on state and local governments to help here. And then we have instances, for example, in Tennessee, where we're told the person who was heading of vaccinations was fired for promoting vaccinations. Uh, and I don't, I you know, I don't have all the facts on this story, but some of the reports I've heard is that the that department that's supposed to promote vaccinations is now told don't promote vaccinations, uh, which is extraordinary. If that's really true, I haven't heard from the Tennessee department and how they would counter that. But uh, if you have state governments doing this or you have state governments poo-pooing things or reopening things when COVID cases are soaring again, that's going to be very difficult when kids go back to school because as of right now, most younger kids are not vaccinated. And these COVID cases we're seeing are in primarily younger people because they're the ones who aren't haven't gotten the vaccinations yet. And a little more on that Tennessee scandal. The state's vaccination chief, Dr. Michelle Fiscus, was fired after she issued vaccine guidance detailing the state's mature minor doctrine, which allows 14 to 17-year-olds to obtain medical care, including vaccines, without parental consent. That doctrine, by the way, was the result of a state Supreme Court ruling. In addition, Tennessee has halted all vaccine outreach on school property, not just for COVID, but for other conditions as well, such as measles and HPV. All of this under pressure from Republican state lawmakers according to the Tennessean newspaper. Tennessee is already one of the least vaccinated states in the country, with just 38% of the population inoculated against COVID-19, and as a result, cases are rising. Andy Field, thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, we'll have more with Andy Field as Republicans push highly restrictive voting laws while Congress works to curtail them when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. With GOP-led legislatures advancing restrictive new voting laws and Congress deadlocked over proposed legislation, President Biden delivered a major speech on voting rights in Philadelphia. As soon as Congress passes the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, I will sign it and watch the whole world see it. However, such legislation is unlikely to pass the Senate, where Republicans have been filibustering Democratic priorities. Joining us now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And is the White House finally jumping into this debate? Because it seemed like President Biden preferred to stay on the sidelines on this issue until now. He's talked about it, but he, you know, he's not, he hasn't twisted arms, and I'm not sure how much the arm twisting will work. Uh, the problem hasn't changed. Uh, it, you can get it through the House fairly easily. The The House has a, a majority where the Republicans vote no and the Democrats vote yes. And I, if Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, two Democrats that are not reliable in a lot of Democrat votes, uh, played ball, then they could also get it through the Senate, except for one thing. Uh, they have this thing called the filibuster where you need... 60 votes even to get to a vote. That's that's the weird little Texas two-step that you have to do every time you try to pass a law in the Senate, which is you have to have a vote on whether you really want to take a vote. 
And that's what usually stops those things dead in their tracks, because you need 60 votes to get to the vote, which then could just be a simple majority. Uh, and unless you can convince 10 Republicans that this is a critical problem in this country, and it's going to be hard convincing Republicans to say, hey, uh, we don't like what Republican lawmakers are doing in various states because it's going to make us more likely to win. You're going to have a hard time finding Republicans in the Senate to, to say that and do that. Uh, now, if they were people who believed in the right for everyone to vote, they might think differently, but you know, you can't really read what's in their minds. Uh, so that's the issue here. Uh, they could get rid of the filibuster. That's something that Kristen Cinema and uh, and Joe Manchin, the two recalcitrant Democrats, have said they absolutely won't do. You remember that Republicans got rid of the filibuster to get ram Supreme Court justices through. So forevermore, whoever's in the majority, let's say that a Supreme Court justice resigns right now. And uh, Joe Biden gets all the Democrats in line to support whoever it is he wants to go in there. That person will become the next Supreme Court justice. There's no question about that because Republicans can't stop it because Republicans, when they were in power, got rid of the filibuster. Well, now what Democrats want to do is exactly the same thing for everyone, everything else. There are up and down sides to that. The upside is the power in party, even if it's by one vote, always gets what it wants in the Senate. The downside is, is that the power out of the party out of power, which could be the Democrats in the next election, will be might as well just stay home because it doesn't matter what they say. The majority party is always going to win. Uh, and that's where we are right now in a very precarious situation. So what exactly is in this federal legislation? Because the president in that soundbite we just played mentioned two pieces uh, of legislation going through the House and passing the House. What exactly would it do? There's a lot of things it would do. It, uh, one of them uh, is important is is that it would stop this disenfranchisement and uh, requirements of, of uh, these onerous steps to get a voter ID. Although in order to get this bill passed, because Joe Manchin likes the idea of voter ID, Democrats may have to, uh, to compromise on that. Uh, the other issues are in terms of uh, sending out automatic registration for voting, sending out uh, ballots to people uh, if they want to do absentee balloting. These are a lot of things that Republicans want to restrict in many places because they, whether they honestly believe it or they uh, cynically think that this is an issue that really isn't an issue, they say it's it's opened up uh, too many chances to cheat on the election, despite the fact that there is virtually no evidence that that happened. Uh, and, and that's where we got to where uh, Joe Biden talked about what he called is no other election has ever been under such scrutiny and such high standards. The big lie is just that it's a big lie. And he never mentioned Donald Trump by name. But, of course, that's what he's talking about. Donald Trump, you know, as we all know, lost 60 court cases. Every state legislature uh, certified the election and certified the Joe Biden won the Electoral College, but that has not stopped Donald Trump even months and months after the election from continuing to say the election was rigged and we need these laws to suppress voters so that we can make sure that we get a better shake the next time around. And that's really what this is all about. So it's a, basically codifying some national rules to make sure that state lawmakers can't go in and say, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. We're only going to have one drop box in a county with several million people. 
those are the kind of things that they're trying to do, for example, in Texas right now. Uh, but uh, the federal law would basically supersede those local laws and add some ex- extra protection, just like the Voting Rights Act of the mid-60s did, that has been steadily eroded by Supreme Court cases and by not renewing certain portions of it. GOP's critics have been pretty harsh, many pointing to the uh, fact that it seems that instead of trying to win the vote with a better argument, they're trying to limit the vote so they can stay in power. Is that a legitimate criticism? Uh, the Republicans don't think so. The Republicans are saying that's not the case at all. They want to make sure that only legal votes get cast and and anyone else doesn't get a chance to do that, which is why, for example, I think it was in Georgia or was in Florida. What, what, I'm pretty sure it was Georgia where they purged a whole lot of people from the voting uh, rolls uh, on basically technicalities or the fact that they hadn't voted in the last election or whatever it was. You don't necessarily have to vote in every election to to keep your registration up to date in some states. But we have a hodgepodge of voting uh, laws all across the country. And is it really fair that uh, your vote counts more uh, in one state than it does in another, uh, depending on on whether you're impoverished and you can't get to a certain place or it's a little more difficult to do it, or if you're standing in line and someone gives you a bottle of water, you've broken the law. I mean, these are the kind of things that are, that are being uh, put out there that, that seem fairly outrageous, but Republicans insist that that is not their intention, uh, that they are basically just trying to make uh, clean up the voting laws so that everyone gets a fair shake. So is there any weight to the Republican arguments that the elections are insecure and that there is widespread voter fraud? Not from all the investigations that we've seen, not not from 60 court cases that Donald Trump lost in every single one of them, not from all the states that certified these things, did investigations, did recounts. How many recounts did we see in Georgia? There's a recount that's been going on for more than a month in Arizona. Uh, and the only thing that has to do with things not being secure is the actual recount <laughs> that we're, we're seeing people and and uh, using uh, methods that are not the typical methods we see in, in recounts. So uh, is there something to the Republicans saying this here other than they're just saying it? Not from the proof that we've seen in the last six to seven months. This is also what President Biden had to say during his speech. In America, if you lose, you accept the results. You follow the Constitution. You try again. You don't call facts fake and then try to bring down the American experiment just because you're unhappy. So how much of this is Republican legislatures really falling into line behind President Trump's false false assertion that the election was stolen? It certainly appears that way from the outset. But again, when you talk to these Republican lawmakers, they will say up and down, left and right, in and out, that that's not the case, that they just want to make sure that there is no voter fraud. Now, there were hearings in Texas the other day uh, where Democrats challenged the Republicans to come up with examples of voter fraud and widespread fraud, and the Republicans couldn't do that. Didn't stop them from still pushing this bill, didn't stop Democrats from having to flee the state because they knew they didn't have the votes to stop this in in the legislature there. So, uh, yeah, this is a, this is a huge problem. I mean, most Americans don't remember back before 1965 when it was difficult, if not impossible, for African-Americans to vote in this country, despite the fact that they had the right to vote. And there are minorities, not just African-Americans now, but many people 
who are terrified that these laws will make it so difficult to vote that they can't do it anymore. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come, we'll have more on this topic as proposed voter suppression laws in Texas have prompted lawmakers to flee the state. When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Como's Charlie Harger. Democratic state lawmakers in Texas have left the state in an effort to prevent a vote on bills they strongly disagree with. And the question is, could something similar happen here? Republican strategist Randy Peppel joins us on the Como Newsline. Randy, why haven't we seen something like this in Washington state? The rules in Washington state are different than the rules in Texas, as are the rules in Oregon, where we've seen walkouts in years past. And so you just haven't seen that type of of really partisan political stunt like you're seeing in Texas right now. And this is something I found interesting is both parties have done this sort of thing in recent years. Absolutely. This this is not just a Democratic tactic against Republican overreach and in, in the past, Republicans have said the Democrats are overreaching in Oregon on matters of the gas tax and the low-carbon fuel standard down there in years past. This is much more of a partisan political tactic than it is a uh, one-party uh, you know, uh, only tactic. What kind of bills do you suppose would provoke such a reaction among Washington lawmakers, whether it's uh, Republicans, which, of course, uh, you are, or Democrats, if the Republicans were to be in charge? Are are there any hard lines that uh, would trigger something like this if it were possible in Washington? I think in Washington state, you would have seen walkouts over the Democrats' illegal state income tax vote. Certainly. Certainly because the voters have turned down a state income tax 10 straight times, and yet Democrats pushed it through in the session. I think you would have seen, uh, if Republicans were inclined uh, and had this tactic available to them, I think you would have seen a walkout then. Is this healthy for democracy in general to have one party just walk out and, and not have a debate? I think that it is helpful for democracy to have 50 states operating under 50 different sets of rules. So we think so we have that uh, laboratory of democracy at work for us. And some things will happen in states that we don't like. And some things will happen in states that we do like and we might copy them in the future. Uh, So in this case, it doesn't cause me any great angst that Texas lawmakers uh, are taking a vacation in Washington, D.C. because they don't want to vote on something in Texas, just as it didn't bother me greatly when Oregon lawmakers walked out of Oregon and came up to Washington state because they didn't want to vote on a gas tax uh, in the state of Oregon. I don't think it's bad for democracy. It raises a uh, or it puts a spotlight on big differences between the two parties. And so just by what they're choosing to put a spotlight on, they think that's important for their voters. And in in the case here, on voting rights, Democrats think that is the issue that will motivate their voters uh, the most. Uh, Republicans have fought against issues of taxation and energy policy in the past because they thought that would matter more to their voters. So I don't think it's bad for democracy uh, if if you have partisan fights between uh, uh, state act state level actors on this. That's fine. That's what democracy is all about. 
Help me with this. I, maybe this is just uh, rose-colored glasses looking back on the past. It, it seems to me that there used to be strong attempts at reaching compromise between Republicans and Democrats. I know not on all issues, of course. Um, are those days in the past, or are we going to see more and more of this? I think you'll continue to see stark partisan differences between uh, the parties in the near future, uh, just because it is so built in right now. However, I would suggest that the parties do work uh, across the aisle, if you will, when they both think it's in their interest. Right now, it's not in their interest because of the way that the national political boundaries are drawn uh, for congressional lines. As long as a Democrat member of Congress is more uh, concerned about a challenger from their left defeating them in the primary than a challenger from the right defeating them in a in a contest of, you know, Republican versus Democrat ideals. As long as they're more concerned about somebody from their own party thinking they're not pure enough, that's when you see compromise not happening. And in certain states, that is more uh, uh, foregone than in other states. In our state, certainly, we've got uh, a large segment um, uh, of the Democratic legislative populace that is just a rubber stamp vote. I mean, it's a 100 percent vote, uh, party line vote uh, every time. And it'll be up to the voters to decide whether they're going to get tired of that and want to elect people who are willing to work across party lines. Republican strategist Randy Peppel. Randy, thank you very much for your time today. Not at all. Thank you. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week and Life Beat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.